Hi, you're listening to Energy 360 from the Energy and National Security Program at CSIS. I'm Sarah Ladislaw, your host this week. This week, we're going to be looking at China's climate plans and ambitions, how China is affecting global clean energy and climate change trends, and the current state of the U.S.-China relationship. With me are Taya Smith, director of the China program at the Climate Leadership Council, and Ethan Zendler, head of the Americas at Bloomberg New Energy Finance, or BNEF, both of whom are also senior associates here at CSIS. Welcome, guys. Thanks. Thank you. Okay, so China has set some ambitious uh, plans and targets to meet uh, within the context of their their climate change position. Um, one of them is, you know, to peak and then decline CO2 emissions by 2030. Uh, another is to grow the clean energy portion of their mix, or I guess non-fossil-based energy use to about 20% uh, of their energy mix by 2030. They also have some carbon intensity reduction uh, targets as well. These are things that we've known for the last, you know, several years in terms of uh, the last uh, several climate change negotiations uh, and things like that. But we always want to sort of check in on how and why China is motivated to take action on climate change, right? They're the world's largest emitters, really important as part of the global dynamic on uh, climate change action and leadership. I was just wondering, maybe, Taya, starting with you and all of the experience you've had working with China on climate change over the years, what is it that drives them? What are the motivations in the sort of Chinese domestic context for why they take action on climate change? Um, it's a great question. Back in 2007, uh, the Chinese weren't really talking about climate change. Uh, there was lack of interest in any kind of leadership there. The key thing that changed was air pollution and the intensity, importance of dealing with air pollution politically in China. Um, and so they had to start moving and really taking action there. At the same time, very smart, astute politicians realized that if you're doing something on air pollution, it gives you some really good data for climate change as well. And so what came, moved from being a very unsafe place, as in the Chinese were concerned that they didn't know how to handle climate change, um, suddenly they had some good data. And they were able to track it and keep you know, pushing forward and discovered you can have a real co-benefit po politically from dealing with climate change at the same time you dealt with air pollution. Um, they've made incredible progress on air pollution. Really, since the worst days when the AQI was in the 800s, um, they're now down you know, more like 150 or lower on average in Beijing now. Um, and at the same time, you can see that the data trends parallel for where they're at on climate change. So ambition, I think, has changed slightly. Uh, there's a, a real, you know, discovered that there's some great political wins globally for taking specific action on climate change and not limiting it only to the co-benefit from pollution control. Uh, and so they've made, you know, taken steps. They were forward leaning, both in leading up to the Paris Accord and since the Paris Accord. Um, they've seen some leadership wins there, especially vis-a-vis -vis the U.S. Um, and are, are moving to see what else can happen. Now, that said, since the U.S. has taken a step back a little bit recently on climate change issues, the data is just not a, Just a little bit? Just a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, there's not quite the same push that we saw before. And so the willingness and excitement from the Chinese side to take a leadership role on climate seems to have diminished 
um, certainly for, from the last few years. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, we can get into the data a little bit as to what's helpful. Yeah, I think, you know, what would be interesting is, um, uh, Ethan, if you're seeing it the same way, right, this perspective, and you hear it a lot, that China's fundamental concern on climate change is born out of an air quality and a local environmental perspective as opposed to the global challenge perspective. But maybe over the last eight years, and certainly the last administration, was able to co-opt that interest in a certain way and say, hey, there's also some real benefits to advancing a move towards low-carbon technologies that are squarely in China's wheelhouse. Is that how you've seen this progression as well, Ethan? Yeah, I think so. I think a lot of the stars sort of aligned when the U.S. and China uh, about a year before the Paris Agreement, sort of went off and, and put together their own agreement on on climate stuff. And it was certainly everything Taya says absolutely right, which is there was a lot of domestic reasons which got um, which got folks motivated there to clean up the air. I would argue that sort of simultaneously there was a recognition, um, probably certainly on the part of a number of companies and perhaps also on some policymakers part as well, that um, there was a great global opportunity to export clean energy technologies to the likes of Germany and the U.S. and other countries as well. And thus, we saw a very, very quick ramp up of manufacturing capacity, particularly for solar, but also wind equipment in China, uh, as they viewed this opportunity for to serve a, a global market. And that happened some, somewhat simultaneously and has built us up to where we are today. And one of the you know interesting things I think about that is we're hearing much more about the uh, international competitiveness aspect of Chinese leadership on climate in particular as well. We'll talk about it in a minute about you know um, how this feeds into some of the tariff discussions that we're uh, that we're talking about. But really, there was a point in time where getting China to believe in the competitiveness aspects and the positive economic benefits of climate change was very much aligned with where the U.S. was on international climate policy. And that looks to be a significant point of departure at this point. But going back really quickly, there's been some reporting um, uh, lately. And Taya, you mentioned the value of having good data on local air pollution as one of the drivers for China to get more involved in this issue. And one of the problems we always have is figuring out whether China is actually meeting, exceeding, or falling short of its targets. By your read, where is China? Is China over-complying in some ways and under-complying in others? Is, you know, how, how should we view China's performance thus far relative to its targets? So if you look at the targets as what they committed to under Copenhagen, under Paris, and then their own five-year plan targets, they're doing pretty well. Um, so uh, Chia Zhenhua, who's the Minister for Climate Change, um, covering climate change, uh, declared last year that they've already met their 2020 target under Copenhagen for energy intensity. I think for the most part, everybody agrees that they're going to continue to meet that. Uh, there's some concerns right now um, as to whether or not that will continue just because of a rising use of coal over the last year pretty much. Um, and the data coming out the first part of this year has also been, you know, showed an increased use of coal, increase of gas and oil in the economy, um, which, you know, say that maybe they haven't peaked. But to put the, you know, the subject in context, there's been estimates that China might have already peaked from its 2030 goal of peak emissions. Um, and, you know, the question is, is it really had peak emissions yet? Are we really, have we been to peak coal? Maybe not, but they're still looking at a 2030 target. Mm-hmm. Ethan, what do you guys think? Well, I mean, it's interesting on a, on a, on a, um, 
a capacity basis, you know, China is now, you know, the, has become very quickly a world leader in terms of adding new wind and solar capacity, and about a third of the grid in terms of on a capacity basis um, is zero carbon if you include large hydro. Uh, but uh, I think as Taya sort of alludes to a little bit, also there's the real questions about how often the stuff they've built actually produces power and and um, and sends it down the line into the grid, and whether or not those projects that are built are given prioritization on the grid. Um, just to put it in context, China on a power uh, grid basis has about a 50% more capacity than the United States does online at any given t time. And, you know, look, it's a big economy, but still that's a lot of capacity. So you, you have to think about who you prioritize. And it's not clear to us that the, um, that the particularly provincial government officials understand that they should be prioritizing dispatch or generation that comes out of wind and solar ahead of existing coal plants. And so I think that's an ongoing issue. But I think to step on that, or long term, but uh, follow on that. Um, some of the decisions and the way that they're making decisions at the local level is employment. They don't want to lay off all these people working in the coal-fired power plants. And the numbers are such that it makes sense for local governments and even for state grid to continue to prioritize coal over you know, some of these other forms of power that haven't come online yet. Um, so the economic decisions that are going into how much do they curtail, how much do they utilize, um, are constant and ongoing and constantly changing. I mean, State Grid has incredible calculations that they use in order to decide which power they're going to pull from at which points in time. We, My colleague Jane Nakano and I had done a recent report on coal markets in India, China, and the U.S., and the political economy of labor was a huge factor in some of the pace and uh, and deviation away from announced reforms in, in all three countries, quite frankly. Uh, so I, I think that's a really great point. What about things like a cap-and-trade system, right? That's gotten huge uh, uh, acclaim, you know, both in terms of what it is and what it isn't. Uh, but the Chinese have, you know, moved forward in trying to put together what is going to be the world's largest cap-and-trade program. What is that about? Is that about data? Is that about overcoming some of these dispatch issues? Does it have nothing to do with that? What what function is that policy that here in the U.S. is so sort of um, identified with climate priorities? What role is that going to play in the Chinese market? Um, so already, China has the largest cap and trade market just in Guangzhou in one of its seven pilots. Um, and it seems to have worked reasonably well there. The announcement by Xi Jinping that they were going to move to a national carbon trading system says that it will be happening. There's not much question that politically the push is for it to happen. And so when they went ahead and announced just one of the seven sectors they announced originally, um, that was sort of set in, role, in motion by the political powers that be. However, they're having so many challenges. Um, anybody knows that running a cap-and-trade emissions trading system is going to be complex and complicated. Uh, those that are trying to put it together from the government side have said that it's turned out to be a lot more complicated. And one of the reasons it's a lot more complicated is because of this very quiet, non-public lobbying that goes forward. Um, industry has said, whoa, we can't do that. There is no way that we can move and be able to handle a real cap. And so we need this subsidy, and we need that rebate, and we need this, and we need that one another. Um, and so it comes up so much, <laughs> right? Um, so I think that's kind of where it's going. It's going exactly how it goes in every other country. 
uh, which is complicated. And they're worried about announcing it because there is a lot of attention and focus, and they need to make sure that it works before they get going. Moving to sort of the international side of the equation, we mentioned it earlier, this idea that um, part of the process of getting China into a more global leadership role on climate change was convincing them that there's benefit to be had from that role. We sort of jokingly talked about how the U.S. is not as involved in that conversation uh, anymore, and there are some expectations or questions around what that means for countries like China uh, in their role going forward. Maybe taking it out of the context of global climate negotiations for a minute and just talking about what Chinese interests are in terms of foreign policy writ large. We hear a lot about things like the Belt and Road Initiative and uh, the Chinese sort of playing a, a larger role in the global stage just because of the difference in the U.S. role today. How much does climate change factor into the way in which, you know, the Chinese are thinking about their own foreign policy and the ways in which they engage with other countries? Well, I guess, I mean, a couple of quick comments. I, I think that certainly with the U.S. departure from taking leadership on climate. It does offer the Chinese the opportunity to stand up on the world stage and say that they care about an issue which they know the rest of the world or lots of the rest of the world does care about and gives them some moral high ground that, frankly, they might not have had before. And we essentially just handed that to them. Um, I think on a more strategic basis, particularly in the energy technologies that I track, that, um, look, there's, there's a motivation to do clean energy that has nothing to do with climate. It has to do with energy security. So for instance, you know, BYD, which is a company that uh, Warren Buffett is an investor and is a um, major manufacturer of electric buses, which now is basically serving the entire Shenzhen bus fleet. Um, China is moving very rapidly to become a leading electric vehicle maker and a maker of the batteries that go into those vehicles. Why is that advantageous to them? Well, that could rec decrease their reliance on, on foreign oil that they would need to bring into the country to, um, to make those cars go otherwise. Obviously, there's also an export opportunity around that. Um, you asked about the Belt and Road Initiative. I think similarly, there are obviously all kinds of things that China wants to do in the Belt and Road Initiative country uh, partners from building roads to bridges to all kinds of things. But building wind farms and solar projects is also a big part of it as well. And you see that in the activity that they bring to countries in sub-Saharan Africa, to Pakistan, to other countries as well. And one of the big advantages that they bring is that when they show up, it's, look, we can provide you with the equipment, but we can also provide you with the low-cost financing. And they bring it all in one package, which can be very compelling to countries. Um, so um, anyway, it's an interesting exercise of soft power. I don't have enough of a sort of historical context to know if this is sort of a new thing for China, but it feels a little bit like it is, that that's the way in which they are spreading goodwill um, by coupling it by saying it's climate related, but they're also promoting their own industries uh, at the same time. It's, it's clever, and we have given them an enormous opportunity to go forth and do all of this. Hmm. Taya, what about you? I mean, do you do you think one you meant we talked about this a little bit earlier, but do you think that China genuinely regards this as a global leadership opportunity? And particularly when you're thinking about things like the Belt and Road Initiative, is it just sort of, you know, clean energy technologies and options are just one of a variety of things that they will vend to other countries as part of this soft power, you know, relationship? Or is it really something that they've embedded as a part of a strategy for thinking about how the world is going to decarbonize, not just how China is going to uh, make opportunities out of this imperative. 
Right? So I think that's sort of the key question in China policy right now, right? Is, is it really just a mercantilist approach or do they have betterness for the world there? Um, it's a bit of both in that you know, China is very much affected by climate change. Rising oceans, flooding, desertification, these actually hit China far more than they do even our own country here. So there's an awareness about the impacts of climate change on other countries, especially island nations um, that are out there. In the climate change negotiations, the Chinese have always done everything they can to sort of represent the G77. They have sort of taken on that mantle of we are going to push for the rights of other countries. We are going to represent all of those who are not industrial nations. Um, so from a foreign policy perspective, that has been at the forefront of how they've approached things. And you'll see that in their negotiations on finance, kind of in the international opinion on finance, um, on a lot of trade issues, they come out and push for the rights of the G77 under the larger mantle of China is still a developing country. Mm -hmm. um, and so they want to put themselves into that basket of developing countries in order to get more advantageous positioning. So, you know, is it altruistic? Hmm. Maybe. <laughs> a little bit. Um, Are they still a developing country in that sense? <laughs> well, it's dubious. Right. And they've worked very hard to try not to be categorized as a middle-income country. And certainly anybody who visits major cities in China would argue strongly that parts of China would no longer fall into those categories. Um, and Belt and Road is very much of an interesting ploy. So they've got some serious overcapacity issues that need to be dealt with. And when you look at a lot of the projects being built around on the Belt and Road, uh, they deal with steel, Chinese steel coming out. It is an employment program. It is an overcapacity program. It also has a really nice set of green guidelines that theoretically every project on Belt and Road looks at sustainability. They put into different calculations on the finance side. It's very much of a how can we help the world become more sustainable and when you listen to the top-level politicians talk about it, it seems that that's one of their goals within the Belt and Road Initiative overall, is to help bring sustainability to the rest of the world. The reality is there's no data. Mm -hmm. And so it's hard for us to evaluate, other than being able to kind of cherry pick and look at different projects around the world, um, as to which ones are green and which ones are sort of pushing forward on climate objectives and which ones are simply a nice place to rebuild a very dirty aluminum manufacturing facility. You know, that is a really good point. We have a big project here on the Belt and Road Initiative where we're trying to put data around the projects that are being announced. And the first sort of threshold problem that you get to is what's actually a Belt and Road Initiative project versus something that's just happening anyway. It becomes much more difficult when you're trying to look at the granularity of the emissions impact of a given project, even the direct emissions impact, not sort of the indirect as well. So it is a difficult question to answer. We've gotten used to this narrative, as you alluded to earlier, Ethan, which is you know, China has been very good at contributing to a solution to global climate change because it's been able to deploy technologies at a very large scale and therefore bring down the cost. It hasn't been a process in China that's without hiccups, though, as you also mentioned, right? They're good at building facilities, not necessarily connecting them and making sure that low-carbon electricity is coming out of them. Recently, there have been some announcements about China you know, reducing some of the solar subsidies. It looks like that program is going to go through 
um, some more revisions, maybe to take this conversation and, and make it a little bit more forward looking. What do what, what do we read from, from that decision? Is that just a further evolution and fine-tuning of a policy? Is it a departure from a commitment to solar? How do you think about that? Well, I mean, the first thing just to note is that the Chinese solar market has just been unbelievably strong in the last couple of years. And last year, about 100 um, gigawatts of capacity worldwide of solar were installed, and roughly half of that was in mainland China. To put that, fit, so to put that 50 or so in context, our all-time high, I think, in the U.S. was about 13 or 14, and that's the most ever by any other country. So they've just gone completely gangbusters on photovoltaic uh, capacity. Um, they look like, as of the start of this month, they've decided to essentially, the government has decided to tap the brakes on that pretty hard. And actually, as a result, we lowered our forecast from what was going to be about 47 to 65 gigawatts of capacity built this year. And by the way, that's a huge range, <laughs> but China's very hard to sort of keep track of how much actually gets done. Um, we lowered that to 32 to 42. So you're talking, you know, 15 to 20 gigawatt reduction. Um, not to get too technical, but let's suppose it's 20 gigawatts lower. In the context of the global market of 100 or so, or maybe 110 to 20, that's a huge decline. So what China does has major impacts for the rest of the world. Um, sort of somewhat ironic thing is, okay, well, that might mean less build in China, but we also think that will drive the price of equipment down quite sharply right now, mm -hmm. and that will make solar cheaper for the rest of us. And so it could lead to higher installation rates in the United States and other places as well. So, um, But to be clear, that move is being made domestically by the Chinese because the system of subsidy that they've put in place is proving to be quite costly to their coffers. And I th think it's been more costly than they had anticipated. And now they're putting the brakes on it to try and save some money, essentially. Mm -hmm. okay. And is the does it i mean does it seem like a rational decision to make on their on their part it does and i mean historically in the world of solar and frankly more broadly renewables there has been a history of countries essentially over subsidizing their industries and then being shocked and amazed <laughs> that when you basically do that that the uptake is much faster than you expect and then the the liability to taxpayers or to the government is higher than is than expected we saw that in germany we saw it in spain we've seen it in the czech republic we've seen a lot of places italy other places as well and so in some ways this is to be expected but like everything with china this is being done on a much bigger scale than all those other countries that I just mentioned before. So it, it, this does happen, um, and it's not great news for the domestic industry. Um, but I think the longer view is it might be good for the rest of us who might be on the fence about putting solar on our roofs, and suddenly if the cost of the equipment comes down even further, that might motivate some people. Well, you know, also thinking about various sort of um, EV policies and battery technology policies and a whole bunch of things that, you know, China has decided are in their own strategic interests to be a big commercial player. And they do go through periods where they adjust those policies to be effective in a way that they need them to be. And so it, to me, it just seems like an evolution of, uh, of a policy rather than a departure from deciding that solar there, is there's important. There's probably an element of, of the government wanting consolidation within the Chinese solar sector as well. And this mm -hmm. will certainly prompt that because only the strong will survive this now. And there'll be, there'll be a consolidation that takes place. Mm -hmm. Taya, you're a longtime China watcher uh, in this topic. What are you, as you're looking forward with everything that we've got going on, both in terms of the domestic, political, and economic moment in China, but also where we are in, in uh, 
the global stage on trade issues and climate issues and everything, as you're looking at China and, and how it's developing along the lines of its involvement in this issue, what are the important things you think to watch? So some for China, it always comes back to the domestic circumstance. And so long as there's still a high level of attention um, on air pollution, water pollution, soil pollution, the Communist Party is going to have to prioritize this. And sort of beautiful China has been a key political issue for Xi Jinping. And it's something that people have seized upon. They love the idea of having clean air, clean water, a higher quality and standard of living in China. And the economic dynamics there are such that people are starting to want to stay in China. We're seeing a large number of students from the U.S. wanting to go back to China. However, as soon as they have kids, they're starting to look and see, well, do I have to stay here? So that really puts the pressure on the Communist Party to move. Um, we will see, you know, what happens like with the solar subsidies. Does Yunnan province change its policy on requiring every residential dwelling to have solar on it? Um, if those types of policies start changing, then it might suggest, you know, that China won't continue as quickly down the road as it was. From the global perspective, you know, it's sort of fascinating to see the role of the U.S. in how China plays on a lot of global issues. Um, we, and we're forward-leaning on climate change. I think the Chinese feel like they can't not be right up there with us because on so many levels they see themselves as partners um, or, you know, cooperative partners in a process so long as they can see an advantage to doing so, right? I mean, there's got to be a good term for that. Um, but there, you know, without the U.S. present and pushing forward, you can see a number of places where the Chinese government just kind of step back, you know, whether it be implementing the ETS or what their, you know, conversations that they're having globally. At the same time, they're doing great with the Europeans. The Europeans are so excited to have, and we hear this from European climate officials, they're really pleased with the level of cooperation and support they're getting from China right now. That doesn't mean that the Chinese have made any additional pledges. doesn't mean that they're planning to follow through any more on things that they are. But they're having some really great positive cooperate, you know, conversations. And I think the political people will like to continue those positive conversations, especially you know, as the U.S. becomes more and more outspoken about how we're not interested in working with other countries on a number of different issues. So where we're going in the future, I think, is you're not going to have a forward, strong, leading China, the head of climate change. They're so happy for the Europeans to continue to take that role. Um, and you're not going to have them move nearly as fast as if the U.S. were part of that conversation. But they're not going to be left behind simply because they have no other political choice within their own country. And what about this theme of subnational leadership that has come out of the U.S. process, right? This idea that even if the U.S. federal government is not interested in being leader on this states, cities, other folks, political constituencies within the U.S. are. I'm always a little bit skeptical that those two things can equal each other at the end of the day. But is there even that political dynamic within China if they were to have subnational actors and have had subnational actors from the U.S. reach out and say, let's you know, take the leadership mantle, but from a, from a local level? Is that a, a message that resonates? Do they have that kind of political constituency in China? So they do. And, and Ethan, I was just talking about the role of Shenzhen, 
um, in sort of different provinces around China. Different leaders are very excited to be forward-leaning. Uh, the Chinese central government, though, is going to be very cautious. You know, one of the first indicators we'll have of this will be in mid-September when Jerry Brown's summit takes off. So, you know, we have Xi, Xi Jinhua has agreed to be a co-sponsor of it, but it's not clear that the Chinese will actually end up sending any high-level officials to it. It's simply a very uncomfortable place to be in when California's sort of attempting to undermine what the federal government wants to do on climate change. Um, so I think what you'll see is attempts to be supportive, a lot of subnational cooperation, but not the central government to subnational leadership that many in the U.S. would like to see happen. I, I was in uh, China for the Clean Energy Ministerial last year, and um, Secretary Perry was over there for it, and Jerry Brown was over there as well. Um, and as I, as I had heard it, understood it, Brown managed to sort of finagle a meeting with Xi uh, Jinping very much last minute um, and ended up on the front page of the major newspapers and <laughs> on TV and everything, which uh, either was a suggestion that the Chinese want to engage in this sort of subnational process, although having Brown do that is one thing, or it was simply just to kind of stick their finger in the eye of, of the Trump administration, which I think was maybe a little bit more of it. But it certainly was intriguing. It was an intriguing thing to see. It was an I mean, I, I assume nothing happens by accident, right? I mean, this picture didn't end up on that newspaper, you know, by mistake. Delivered directly to Perry's door. Right, exactly. Whether it flips around, though, the other way and we see that kind of engagement from subnational players in China, I, I don't know enough about the political situation there. I, I would. Uh, the only thing I would say is that on the other side, I have concern that the federal government may set top-line climate goals, but the provincial governments don't always want to follow through on those for exactly the reasons that Ty was mentioning earlier, which is, you know, look, the local coal plant employs some number of hundreds of people. And yes, the solar plant employed some number of hundreds of people while it was being built, but now that it's online, it employs a dozen people. Um, and so I think that's the those kinds of decisions that get made more locally by at national grid and also by governments that those I think are not always so uh, positive. But the last thing I will say is that sub uh, provincial at the at the city level, we are seeing, you know, cities where you literally can't get a car unless you agree that it's going to be an electric vehicle. Um, and that's, you know, a very positive sign. Whether they're thinking globally and thinking about, oh, wow, we want to make a deal with Jerry Brown or the city of Los Angeles, I don't think so. I think they're just trying to get the air cleaner in their city because they want to keep their residents from, you know, leaving or even revolting. Um, if, you know, you can't go outside for some number of days in the year, it becomes not just an environmental issue but a civil rights issue as far as I'm concerned. And so I think that's, that's the number one thing. And cars cause a lot of pollution. So that's one way to address it. Well, that certainly seems to be the underlying point, which is the local environmental impacts still end up being the things at the end of the day that are driving real domestic action in China on climate change, though there's a lot of uh, both opportunistic and just real leadership roles that the Chinese end up playing because of their size and their ability to shape markets through their own activity. So whether they like a leadership role or not, it appears that they've got one. So what we've been talking about so far has to do with the Chinese approach to dealing with climate change within the domestic uh, context, but then also the leadership role that they take on climate change. There's also a whole other dimension here, which is Chinese investment. And the Chinese are investing in countries in lots of countries all around the world 
on lots of infrastructure-related projects. There's clear interest in investing in the United States, but at the same time, the U.S. is rewriting some of the rules uh, of the game on foreign direct investment in the U.S. from a security context in the CFIUS perspective, specifically because of what you know, some of the concerns over China. But also, we're using a lot of national security uh, reasoning to deal with trade practices we don't like. What should we think about when it comes to Chinese investment in the U.S. in energy, along energy lines, um, given that context? So I think in China's Copenhagen Accord agreements, they had said that they were going to be increasing um, natural gas as part of their broader energy mix. And as a result, companies have been looking in the U.S. We get lots of calls all the time for, can you help connect me with this company down in Texas? Or where can we get natural gas? Or some of these other um, key products in that process. That interest has been high. The recent exposure to how the Trump administration is perceiving trade and the use of national security as a way to stop a lot of um, different trade practices has raised concern. The Chinese um, companies and Chinese government don't forget things. We still have all these conversations about Sinuk Unical that happened you know, well over 15 years ago and concerns um, on the Chinese side that they would be pulled out through a CFIUS investigation. So CFIUS is at the top of their mind. That in addition to how uh, the conversations going on about how we want to reduce CFIUS to include economic components to our national security review has a lot of investors in China nervous. Now, it doesn't show yet that I've seen, and Ethan, maybe you have seen differently, that there's been a big impact. So we know that Chinese investment in the U.S. is down from the last year, from 2016 at any rate. Um, that appears to be, though, because there were two or three companies that were doing most of the investments in the U.S. Mm -hmm. So it could just be that those companies have done what they were going to do, and other thing, the investment will continue for a while. Around energy, though, it's a big deal. And you have states, and this goes back to your subnational questions, but you have states that are quite interested in Chinese investment and Chinese you know, participation in natural gas exports, um, in supporting some of the industry along the Gulf Coast mm -hmm. in ways we haven't seen uh, taper at all in the last few months. There's also been that big project in West Virginia, which I haven't actually read much about recently. It was some big investment in theory that the Chinese were going to make in coal uh, production. It's a Shenhua yeah. project there. Yeah, um, which I haven't heard, and I can't remember what the dollar number was, but it was high. It was like $2 billion or Yeah, uh, but I haven't heard much uh, beyond that. I also don't know why China would want to invest in our coal when we see, and I think most people see, coal usage in the U.S. going down. So presumably they'd be investing in it to bring it back to China, but they have their own coal. So I don't know why they would be doing that. But anyway, that that is, um, I think that's a sm it's sort of an asterisk compared to the natural gas question and conversation. And clearly China is open to importing more U.S. gas. I do think it's kind of funny that out of all these sort of combative discussions we've had about trade between the U.S. and China, one of the potential so-called victories would be that the Chinese would buy more of our LNG, which they want to do anyway. Let's be clear. This is no concession whatsoever. And I am amazed to me that the Trump administration holds that up as a potential victory. Um, clearly, they want 
want to buy more. They have been buying more for all the reasons we've been talking about. They want to clean their skies. They, you know, they want to burn less coal. It, it, it makes a lot of sense for both parties. Um, so that's going on within our industry. And actually, we always stop and mention. We mentioned CFIUS. It's always worth spelling out. That's the committee, I think, for investment in the United States. If I've got the foreign investment in the United States, it sounds like a disease. But it's uh, anyway. CFIUS is um, <coughs> is a um, it is a committee within Treasury, if I've got it right, that essentially can get, get kind of very quietly put the kibosh on all kinds of different transactions and does, as I, as I understand it. And look, I would think the Chinese would take one look at the events of the last, you know, three or four days where we've decided that China, uh, sorry, that Canada presents a national security threat to us um, and say, well, that seems like something that, um, that this administration will invoke, you know, at the drop of a hat. And so if we've decided that Chinese, uh, sorry, the Canadian dairy trade is in some ways, you know, you know, you know, endangering our borders, then I would imagine that we, that CFIUS will gladly use it for all kinds of other things. We have seen it, CFIUS used, uh, particularly with a, uh, a wind project in, in Oregon um, several years ago, um, and in other cases where they have basically quietly been involved. And so I think it's a fair question. I think one other thing I was just say about foreign investment is, you know, that in, in, as far as clean energy is concerned, is that the uh, Trump administration um, has successfully put in place or is in the process of putting forth tariffs on Chinese-made solar equipment. And one of the goals was to prompt more domestic photovoltaic manufacturing. Uh, and in fact, we are seeing a little bit more uh, manufacturing come online. Now, frankly, some of that may have been planning in the process, but one of them is from a Chinese company that is opening a plant in Florida. So there's a little bit going on there uh, potentially as well. Um, you could call it direct investment. You could call it just expansion of an existing global company, but there's some of that happening. Um, listen, thank you guys both for your insights uh, on this topic. It'll, it's one that we're going to revisit again. So we really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us today. Thanks. Absolutely. Thank you for having us. Great. Again, I'm Sarah Ladislaw with the CSIS Energy and National Security Program. And thanks for listening to Energy 360.